number one, he could take a very authoritarian turn quickly. Trump will be going after very vulnerable populations um, and he will be trying to divide us. If the left is not successful at dealing with that, we will lose this battle and we don't know what the future holds, frankly. Hey everyone, Blake here at Stuist Media in Munich, Germany, and this is the Resistance Companion Podcast. In January 2017, we went to Washington, D.C. during the week of Trump's inauguration to document the resistance on the street and to interview leaders and influencers within the movement. The footage would eventually become a web series we call Resistance. If you want to check out the series, be sure to go to our Vimeo channel at vimeo.com slash In putting together the series, we always have to make decisions based on the story and the audience, which usually means cutting down interviews to relevant ideas or sound bites. But we wanted to be able to give the audience more context and just more of the information that we learned in talking to these folks, and so this podcast was born. Here we'll feature individual interviews from some of the people we met that week in order to help you to get to know them and the movements they represent. Our aim with this whole project is just to help people engage with these groups and organizations in order to build the grassroots movement that we'll need to win a livable future. This week's episode features my interview with Maria Swart. She's the National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America. We had a wide-ranging discussion about organizing around the Bernie campaign, divisions on the left, and even some practical examples of how to resist. Stay tuned after the interview where my co-producer Randy and I will discuss just how so much of what Maria had to say back then is still relevant today and kind of bring it up to date with all the things that's happened in between. Without further ado, here's Maria Svart. So uh, we're here at the DSA offices with National Director of the DSA, Maria Swart. Hello. Great Hello. pronunciation. Thank you. <laughs> I did my best. Um, so let's dive right in. Let's hear a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with the organization, and uh, what's your background as far as uh, democratic socialism? So I started out as a feminist. Uh, I grew up in a family uh, of folks that my extended family had a lot of union members in it. And I am biracial, you couldn't tell, I can pass as white, I'm a woman. Uh, I basically grew up knowing the world is not fair. Uh, and I knew, my parents are liberals, so they're pretty political. They would shout at the TV when I was a kid, they would take me to rallies once in a while. So I, I grew up knowing that the little guy will get screwed. We need to band together, essentially. Um, I became first a feminist activist, and I was in college. Um, one day there was an event on campus called What is Socialist Feminism? And it intrigued me because as a feminist, uh, I had a broader analysis than sort of the mainstream, what I now call liberal feminist analysis or even a radical feminist analysis. I recognize class and race as big problems that weren't being addressed, although I didn't know in those terms. So I went to this event and I had an epiphany about the interlocking systems of oppression, capitalism, and patriarchy. And uh, the rest is history. I got involved in the Young Democratic Socialists, which had organized the event on campus. Um, I was involved in other things, uh, labor solidarity work, environmental work. And I then got involved in the Young Democratic Socialists, which is the campus uh, student wing of DSA. So I, I was involved in the Young Democratic Socialists for a number of years. I was in national leadership. Uh, I eventually was on the DSA National Political Committee. Um, 
at this time, by then I was a union organizer. Um, after school, I did campus organizing, and then I did union organizing for a number of years. And uh, and then I was on the DSA National Political Committee. And my evolution was really, I think, the evolution that a lot of people go through, where their lived experience causes them to question the world, but they don't have words to define what's going on. And then they um, they are exposed in various you know, there are different ways to be exposed to a political analysis. Um, and then they want to learn more. And it really, um, there's a moment where suddenly you can see what's happening and you have words to describe it. So that's what happened to me. Uh, and I was a union organizer for a number of years. And then DSA's prior national director was retiring. And um, I really felt that DSA was my political home. And I still feel that way. Um, and so I've been the national director for almost six years at this point. Um, and I've lived in various places around the country. I've traveled for work. I now live in New York. Um, but my favorite part of the job is, is visiting our grassroots chapters, which we have all over the country, um, and doing the organizing part, part of the work. Getting your hands dirty. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the history of the DSA, because I think uh, maybe now more people have heard about it, but I don't think people really appreciate kind of the history and how far back it really goes and how spread out nationwide it is. Could you speak mm -hmm. a little bit to that? So DSA actually has roots in the Socialist Party and our our vision of socialism is a very democratic vision. Um, Eugene Debs was a socialist who, uh, he has some great quotes about how he doesn't want to lead people to the promised land because then they can be led right back out. He's really about bottom-up democracy. And that is really a cornerstone of our vision of socialism. Um, but in more recent times, DSA was formed by the merger of two movement organizations um, in the early 80s. And um, we, we like to joke that the fact that we were born out of a merger instead of a split is very important to understanding our politics um, because we're really oriented towards um, being the, uh, the socialist thread in a broader progressive movement. Um, and this is particularly important in the moment that we're living in now with Trump. Um, so that happened in the 80s. And then DSA you know, has existed for that time. Um, we actually, our membership went down and we were less active. I mean, we did a lot of work in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but in the aughts, we were a little less active. Um, I was part of a cohort, actually, with um, some other folks on staff and some folks in the national leadership now that really made a conscious decision that we needed to um, re-energize DSA and build a bridge between generations. Because a lot of organizations on the left and even in the progressive movement um, had this huge generational gap between baby boomers and young people, and they were going to die. And we really saw the politics as very important and the political program as very important. So we began uh, very intentionally to build bridges between generations. Um, we worked with both sides of the generational divide to understand each other. Um, and that has positioned us for what happened with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And then unfortunately, what happened with Trump. Um, and now we're at a point where we had been growing um, prior to Sanders. We started growing a lot during the Sanders campaign. And since the election, we have more than doubled. So um, 
we are definitely re-energized and because of the work that we've been doing in the past few years, we're in a position where we can't have an intergenerational organization and a um, politically pluralist organization um, and a really healthy, national, vibrant organization, which is, you know, aside from our political line, which is important, um, the structure that we have to, to um, push that line is also very important. Um, on that note, you kind of touched on all the stuff about Bernie, but uh, so in my research, I came across this video, I think from 1991, where he addresses the DSA. And he must have just been in Congress, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't clear. I couldn't really figure out. He was never fully a member, or was he at one time a member of the DSA? So no, he was never a member. Okay. Um, Bernie is not a joiner. Uh -huh. he's, he's a unique, independent guy. Uh, but we've been friends for a long time. He's spoken at a number of our conventions, um, and we've supported a lot of the legislation that he is, has worked on. Um, and we, you know, the right wing loves to go after DSA because we actually, um, DSA members were part of the move to form the Progressive Caucus. And so there's this perennial story that goes around on the right wing that we control the Progressive Caucus, um, during the Obama administration, there were stories that would go around that we were controlling the White House. Um, but the truth is Bernie has been, um, in recent years, our closest friend, even though he was never a member. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we really supported his Senate runs, but also um, we were wholeheartedly behind him when he decided to run for president. And we think we also think he made the right choice to run as a Democrat in the Democratic primary. Um, and I think that choice was demonstrated to be the right choice. Um, so we consider ourselves good friends of Bernie, but he's not a dues-paying member. Okay. Unlike some other folks like Cornell West and Barbara Ehrenreich, um, but we do consider him a friend. To that point, so I, I do remember at that time, I guess it must have been just post-Obama, that like the Glenn Becks kind of turned the DSA into the total boogeyman. Yes. Um, did that have, so in, the opposite sort of the positive effects that Bernie had, did that have sort of noticeable effects on the organization or did it, was there no noticeable? So what the right wing does is use socialism as a boogeyman. And that's why Bernie was such a game changer and still is. Um, so, you know, when people decide to be involved in DSA and to be friends of DSA publicly, um, they've made a choice that they're going to stand up to the bullies. So it didn't particularly hurt us. Um, and in fact, when, you know, later when uh, the Glenn Becks of the world started calling Obama a socialist, I actually think it helped us with mm -hmm. visibility. Um, but the truth is, uh, it didn't really hurt us. And uh, we are very committed to being visible socialists because there are a lot of progressives and there are a lot of closet socialists who say, you know, you could probably get more done if you didn't call yourself socialists. And the reality is maybe we could get some more immediate tangible things done. But if you're not undermining this bludgeon that the right wing uses, which is the socialist boogeyman bludgeon as a weapon, then we're never going to win because even progressive reforms that are not socialistic but do reign in corporate power to any degree will be called socialist. So it's very important. Yeah, it's very, very important to take that weapon away mm -hmm. by pointing out that socialist values are, are very widely shared in this country. Um, and that's what Bernie did. 
um, and he speaks in a language that people understand that aren't out of the traditional left. Um, and that's why we call ourselves socialists. And, and we'll work with folks who are willing to work with us, and there are a lot more that are willing to work with us now. So we covered Bernie. Um, part of that, I think, was these numbers started coming about how millennials, mm-hmm. some could say overwhelming, but at least the majority uh, view socialism favorably, if not mm-hmm. consider themselves socialists. Mm-hmm. How is the DSA and kind of your partners What's the strategy to kind of harness that moment and and use that to your advantage? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because I think one of the reasons that Occupy Wall Street rose up was that millennials were dissatisfied uh, with the economic conditions they were facing. And that's why that they're they're more amenable to socialist ideas. Um, So our... the fact that we've spent years at this point making sure that we have a multi-generational organization that is not... Um, that is genuinely multi-generational and respectful um, about what each generation brings to the table is really important because I think a lot of millennials um, are looking for movement elders to get advice from them and get their perspective. And we have that, and yet we also have folks that are respecting the voices of young people and uh, willing to pass on the baton. So our strategy is really to fully integrate young people into DSA. And because we've done that groundwork, we have the capacity to do it. So, you know, we obviously do a lot on social media. We have our campus wing. We have high school chapters. We have people that want to start middle school chapters. Um, and we, you know, there was a time when whenever somebody was young, we would just send them to YDS. But it's absolutely no longer the case. And we have young people leading DSA chapters. Um, as well as young people part of multi-generational DSA chapters. Um, so our strategy, you know, is, is to be where young people are, obviously, um, social media, um, and to evolve the messaging and the way we do things as much as anything else, um, certainly paying attention to the political concerns of young people. Uh, but all, all of these, you know, all, all the three things that I just mentioned happen organically when you have young people in leadership yeah. and, and young people that are respected in leadership, not just tokens. So um, our strategy is really just to um, integrate them into the leadership of the organization and, um, and then naturally their political interests and their way of thinking and doing things is just infused into the organization. Feel a little more a part of the movement instead of yeah. being told. Or- Absolutely. They're not just told... Um, what to do. You like, actually have a voice. Mm-hmm. So. so going back a little bit, it's been the policy of the DSA for a long time to kind of work within the Democratic Party. Uh, after what happened this time around with the DNC and the Clinton campaign, is that going to continue moving forward or is that kind of in, in question at this point? So we actually haven't really worked within the Democratic Party for quite a long time, although the left likes to tell that story. Further to our left likes to tell that story. Um, it really has been for a long time a bit of a case-by-case basis for DSA. And that's our strategy in the coming period. Um, it really is uh, you know, doing work to the degree we do uh, within the Democratic Party with eyes wide open, um, but also being open to working outside the party. And you know, we've had DSA members run as Green Party candidates, as independent candidates, and as progressive Democrats or openly socialist Democrats. And I think we're in a period where the party structures are um, on both sides for the Democrats and the Republicans are really um, 
facing earthquakes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to be there and we want to be able to be nimble and not be dogmatic about either being in the party or outside the party. Um, so what we're doing is we're training our folks at the grassroots level because everything that we do is based at the community level. Uh, we're training them to think really carefully about electoral work and um, strategy, power mapping, um, and on a case-by-case -case think about the local context and what's the most strategic thing they can do, who they can work with. Um, and we think that you know being inside and outside of the Democratic Party, and frankly, being inside and outside of electoral politics in general, mm -hmm. um, being willing to do direct action, being willing to do corporate campaigns, and being willing to run candidates or do issue campaigns, um, pressuring elected officials, are really important components of being an effective and strategic socialist movement. Um, so in this period right now, we're looking at having DSA candidates run for office um, openly and supporting them. And certainly there will be cases where there are candidates who aren't open DSA members where our chapters will support them. Um, but I do think we're taking much more seriously the question of what does it take to run for office and um, how do you build a base to do that? Because I think that's something that um, third parties and other socialists really um, don't think seriously about because uh, if you don't have money and you don't have a base, then you're not going to win elections. And it's just the way it is. You can't skip that step. So um, training our folks to be able to really do the deep, deep work mm -hmm. to do that in advance. Um, in the local and yep. it out. Yep. And um, I mean, the, it, it sort of um, it highlights the way that we're structured as an organization that we're, uh, and it gets back to the Debsian version of socialism. Um, we are a federated organization with grassroots chapters, and we train them how to organize, and we provide organizing resources and political education resources. Um, but chapters have relative autonomy. We are the opposite of a democratic centralist organization. We're not top-down. Um, our board is elected at our conventions by the members. So um, it really is uh, we try to provide the tools to help the local groups decide what's the most strategic use of their time. I, I, I didn't think it would mention, like, a lot of our new groups are in rural places, so. Is that, can we talk about that? Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Mm -hmm. So when you say rural places, what kind of communities are we talking about? So, yeah, um, we have experienced, what is it? We've tripled the number of organized groups since the election. Um, and many of them are in red states or in rural places. Um, or small towns in, in um, red states. So um, that's everywhere from Montana, where we had Montana DSAers go to the counter neo-Nazi protest in Whitefish, um, and they're building a statewide network of DSA members um, to places like Lincoln and Omaha, Nebraska, um, Central Arkansas, Fargo, North Dakota, um, just, you know, we have five groups in Tennessee, we have six groups in Florida, so, you know, Ohio, like all, everywhere, the South, our fastest growth right now is in the South and the Rust Belt. Yeah. And uh, I think it is partly because folks that are not in major cities um, and are not in the coasts and the sort of traditional blue, blue bastions, um, know that now is the moment that we have to organize because Trump has really um, 
capitalized on the fact that the leadership of the Democratic Party, the Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party, is completely out to lunch and disconnected and disdainful of the base, and the base will no longer come out and vote for them. And a lot of those folks didn't vote for Trump either. So um, it's, uh, it's irresponsible, if nothing else, to ignore that fact. And as socialists, we think we have um, a, a quite different vision and the ability to reach people that Democrats, you know, party Democrats couldn't reach. So um, people are really recognizing the need to do the organizing in their communities. And we are revving up our infrastructure to support rural organizing as much as suburban or urban organizing, which is exciting. So on that note, um, it seems to me that if that after the election there's opened up like a really big void, especially because it seemed like the Democrats didn't really address the real deep economic problems that were happening, especially in the Rust Belt where he ended up kind of taking it. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that we are in a moment where kind of class conscious politics and really delivering an economic message of equality is people are ready to hear that now? I mean, I think people have been ready for a long time, um, but that doesn't mean that it'll be easy. I mean, part of uh, part of the, the danger of Trump is that he, he's, he's surrounded by ideologues in the Republican Party and he's bringing in all these super capitalists from the billionaire class. Um, but he's actually divided from his, his, the traditional Republicans. But he is appealing, appealing to people's economic interests as well. And certainly some of those people are already regretting it. So the way that we think about it is um, we need to be doing um, national defensive work against the Trump agenda. In many red states where the GOP controls the state governor's office or legislature, then we also be, need to be doing defensive work. Um, but also we need to be doing offensive work in places where um, there is more democratic power, um, places like California, to really hold up a vision of what democratic socialism could look like. Um, but in places like the Rust Belt, I think the danger is that um, as economic conditions deteriorate, which they will, <laughs> um, people will buy into Trump's scapegoating um, even more than they already have. And um, that's why we feel a pretty fierce urgency to organize folks. Um, but, you know, there's, like, I think there, there are segments of Trump's base that we can definitely win over. And to cede that ground to the right is a mistake. Um, but even more than that, almost 50% of people didn't even bother to vote. So those are really the people we need to organize. And we sort of think of it as um, organizing the unorganized is our big priority around economic issues, but with a forthrightly racial justice, you know, pro-immigrant vision that we're all in this together. We have a mutual self-interest um, in, in fighting the ruling class. So. I do think it's a moment for those politics is why I think this election demonstrated the need for a democratic socialist organization, both because of our politics and because we're democratic, small d democratic. Um, and certainly I think the fact that we've doubled in size and tripled in the number of organized groups in just the last couple months demonstrates that there is, is a hunger for that. So. Right, so I want to move into kind of the resistance movement, where does DSA see itself as, or where are you guys placing yourself, or what do you think you have to offer, or how are you gonna work within the larger resistance mm -hmm. movement? Mm -hmm. 
So we really see ourselves as part of a broad anti-Trump movement, um, as the socialist wing of the anti-Trump movement. And we believe really strongly in working coalition with non-socialists because um, number one, we don't think we have all the answers and we are democratic about that. We want to learn from others. Um, but also because we, we want to bring a democratic socialist analysis to the masses, essentially. Um, so what we see our work as is, is doing the concrete work, the fights, the defensive fights, um, you know, for example, fighting the repeal of Obamacare and promoting a single payer alternative and using that to organize the unorganized, like I talked about. Um, and also just, you know, pressuring, pressuring Republicans and Democrats at the, at the base in, in local communities. Um, so engaging the struggles, um, solidarity work with most marginalized and targeted communities is, is really key. Right after the election, um, we had an emergency conference call with our chapter leaders about reaching out, and if they didn't have relationships, definitely reaching out um, to particularly Muslim community organizations, um, immigrant community organizations, um, LGBTQ organizations, um, and since we've expanded to synagogues and um, civil rights organizations and racial justice organizations um, and feminist organizations to offer solidarity, literally physical support, whether it's, you know, um, uh, you know, helping patrol communities or, you know, being physical barriers to, to be outside during services and religious houses or whatever folks wanted. Um, we're pivoting to doing a lot of work around sanctuary cities and also immigrant worker rights, just immigration related things, because, um, you know, that is a community that is absolutely going to be targeted and already has been. Um, the vigilante violence is, is, um, is a huge problem. It's, uh, and it's, there's probably gonna be another spike in the coming week after the inauguration. Um, so doing that sort of like, um, mutual support and solidarity and self-defense is really important. Um, doing concrete political work is really important. Um, and through that work, organizing the unorganized. Um, and then the other piece of it is the electoral part, mm -hmm. um, you know, mapping the community, and that's part of doing effective campaign work, but also preparing to run candidates and identifying candidates, um, but also ideological work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're part of this broader, we consider ourselves part of this broader dump Trump movement. Um, we have already seen that the neoliberals are gonna try to control the narrative. Uh, they will fail, <laughs> um, but they'll spend a lot of money trying to control the narrative. So a big part of what we consider to be our work is challenging the neoliberals. So it's not just about Trump, it's about the neoliberals in the Democratic Party. Um, and that is an ideological fight that will include pressuring electeds, but also, um, uh, it's like a rhetorical fight. Right. So we're we're going to do more on social media. We're going to be training our folks to um, engage in things like writing letters to the editor and getting opinion editorials posted and calling into right-wing talk radio and calling into NPR, the liberals, mm -hmm. um, and really uh, having this two, you know, two fronts in this battle mm -hmm. against both the neoliberals and against the far right. Um, 
don't really challenge that perspective. Right, because the neoliberals cannot successfully challenge the far right. right. So we have to challenge the far right and we have to challenge the neoliberals. Um, so that will involve training our members to articulate um, ideas in an accessible way, much like Bernie did. Mm -hmm. um, and um, making sure they do that at the local level the community level, because uh, this country, including the left, far too often has focused on the coasts or just in urban areas or just on the national discourse. And the reality is you can't challenge politicians effectively if you're not organized locally, and you can't reach people if you're not organized locally. And one of the reasons that Trump won, among others, was that a lot of rural people in this country um, felt and were ignored. And... Um, Somebody needs to organize them or the right will. So we'll be doing it. So on that topic of organization, a lot of what I'm trying to investigate is where and if sort of what I call the independent left will be able to form some kind of united front, some sort of new, new political reality for people that are, I think, the Bernie thing had left a lot of people kind of searching for mm -hmm. a new home, as you put it. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see that going? Do you think it's possible? And what factors would have to happen to, to kind of make that a reality? So I think that the left will not successfully do that on its own. Um, I think the left does not have a mass base. So that's a precondition. And that's why we're so focused on organizing. Um, and we work with some groups on the left. We don't work with every group on the left. We're not, we're not interested in working with folks that are hostile to us and trash us publicly, sure. or um, who have a history of um, undermining us. But we will work with some on the left, and we do think it's important for the left to talk to each other because the neoliberals will undermine us and themselves if left to their own devices. Um, but I think you know what we're trying to do in building capacity and running people for local, 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 ultra-local office mm -hmm. um, is the most important thing we can do right now. And training people to think um, strategically about whether to run inside the, part, the Democratic Party or not mm -hmm. is part of that because you train people to think based on strategy instead of a dogmatic approach to politics. And there are plenty of places where the entire Democratic Party is just completely hopeless and undemocratic and, and it um, doesn't even make sense to approach it. And it would be easy, in fact, to undermine it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there are other places where they're really solid progressives and, in fact, some closet socialists right. where it's worth working with them. Um, and in most places, it's a bit of a mix. Um, and there are definitely places you know, where running an independent could totally work. And there are other places where it would make more sense to run as an open democratic socialist in democratic primaries. Um, so, and I think, I certainly think that in some places, uh, people that are democratic activists are the progressive movement, mm -hmm. and then there are other places where um, trying to organize the unorganized, not being in the Democratic Party, will be more successful. So it's all, you know, it's all, it all, every, politics is entirely local, so in many ways. So it's, it's training our folks to think mm -hmm. carefully and thoughtfully and, and thinking about the history of their own community and looking at the players in their own community. Um, that's how we think, that's how we're preparing the ground, essentially because you can't put the cart before the horse, it just doesn't work. Um, so we don't wanna be thinking wishfully. Right. 
But we are we do think that there needs to be something at some point. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you're going to build a third party, it has to rapidly become one of the two main parties, or you know you won't survive. So. So circling back around to kind of forming this unity, if not a party, at least some kind of unified front. Um, so there seems to be at least a couple of organizations that are trying to at least approach the idea of putting everybody together. Um, in that context, would the DSA be, I'm just wondering, is there a moment where we make, the people make a full break from the Democratic Party and go to a fully progressive left movement? Uh, and do you think that's even in the cards within the next, let's say, the four years of resisting Trump? Do you think that's something that could happen? I think it's something that could happen. I think it's unlikely, but I think that we're entering a period where we can't really predict what's going to happen. Um, well, I, I said earlier that I think that both the two main parties are um, in sort of slow motion earthquakes, and they could get really fat. They could get faster. Quickly, um, so it's hard to really predict. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's unlikely to be successful. However, if it's going to happen, <laughs> might be happening, you know, now. Um, and we want to be prepared, and that's part of the reason for building a base. Is, um, you know, I think that political alliances are going to shift. Um, we can't really predict Trump. He could be a complete authoritarian. He could be. Uh, unable to get anything done. You know, he's already sort of divided from his own party, but they might use him. You know, the deep state might <laughs> get rid of him. You know, it's, we can't really predict what's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, and I actually don't know who else is really trying to work to build a third party. And if they, if they don't have a mass base, like some of the major unions behind them, then mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to work. Right. Um, it may be that the unions, some of the unions will realize that they need to do it and they may feel that, that, that it's in the cards, but um, right now I don't see that happening, so. Why do you think, and this is obviously so just a personal opinion, but uh, why do you think it is that the, the left, and I'm, I'm sure it would probably be the same on the right, but in the independent left, why is it so fractious? Why is it so, hmm. uh, it seems to me that like people prefer to have their kind of autonomous things. They'll work with other people when it, when it serves them, but it, I've never gotten the impression that anybody really wants to form any kind of unity thing. Mm -hmm. And what's your opinion why that is? Well, my personal opinion is that um, people would rather be a big fish in a mm -hmm. small fishbowl mm -hmm. than a small fish in the ocean. And I think that's definitely the true, that's definitely the case on the left. Um, I don't know if it's inherently something about ideology, um, but I, I think that the left, particularly in the United States, is so accustomed to being marginal that they have forgotten how to compromise. And if you're building a mass movement, you got to compromise. It's just the nature of it. And frankly, if you're building a democratic movement, you have to compromise. And I think that most groups on the left are incapable of it at this point. Um, I also think that there's sort of a culture of um, allowing uh, inappropriate or marginal behavior, which is sort of the death strike to effective organizing. Like the so, violence and the other things that have come out? And um, I mean, I guess violence, although that wasn't really, I mean, yes, but that wasn't what I was thinking. I was just thinking of like not being able to run a meeting without somebody like right. rambling on yeah. or somebody 
you know, hijacking a meeting. Mm -hmm. If it, you know, why would anybody take that seriously? Yeah. So I think there's a level of um, of uh, professionalism isn't the right word, but um, if you take if you take your work seriously, you're not going to let that happen. Essentially. And I don't think it's, I mean, we in DSA have this um, internal culture that says that is undemocratic to allow one or two people to sort of hijack something. And, you know, the Occupy Wall Street culture of letting one person block something in a huge spokes council um, is a culture that we don't use because uh, we don't think it's democratic. Um, although we also don't use Robert's rules. Always, right. So we try to, to strike a balance, but we think if you take the work seriously enough, you need to find the balance between engaging people and having people have a true, a real voice, a democratic voice in decision-making um, and carrying out of the work, um, but also being effective and being able to actually move forward. So that's a hard balance to find, but um, it's worth it. It's something we cultivate in our organizational practices. Um, I don't know if... I mean, probably the fact that we are not democratic centralist also helps <laughs> um, because people that work with us aren't worried that we're going to try to take over and they're not worried that we're going to try to hijack them and use them. Um, and they know we do things in good faith and they even know that we think we can learn from them rather than we just want to tell them how it is. Right. Um, and I think those are all things that help contribute to a healthy um healthy organization, a healthy ecosystem. In DSA, we're really proud that we're a multi-tendency. And we don't even engage in debate to try to cut each other down. We engage in debate to try to think through these hard questions that, frankly, you know, in DSA, we have a range of people from social democrats to almost Marxist-Leninists mm -hmm. and anarch almost anarchists. Mm -hmm. And um, we can debate each other in a comradely way and ask each other the questions that um, we usually try to avoid and it's easy to, to ignore when you're yelling at each other, right? Yeah. So it's like um, the questions that the left has yet to figure out, we can at least try to grapple with mm -hmm. because we're doing it as comrades. So right. it's a um, contrast with other groups. I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious right. your thoughts on, so in this moment, I think a lot of people hear the resistance and it's a very nice title, but I don't think a lot of people really know, okay, what exactly do I do to resist this government? What am I supposed to do to actually say no to Trump? Mm -hmm. What kind of practical things could you, could you talk about that people in their everyday lives could do to resist? So I think this really varies. Um, and literally personal safety has something to do with it. Um, in a lot of our more urban chapters, uh, really what we recommend, I mean, we recommend the same thing for everyone, but with some variations. So uh, I, I think obviously people should be involved in DSA, and DSA is, is mobilizing in solidarity with people. But um, as an individual, I think what people need to do in this moment is reach out to their neighbors and build community and the infrastructure for mutual support. So a lot of folks are building neighborhood groups, um, reaching out, because a lot of people are scared. Um, it's not necessarily predictable how people feel, so you want to reach out to everyone. Um, you know, there's the, some Bernie staffers are doing this knock every door campaign to door knock everywhere. 
And that's so, so important. It's, it's about organizing people that are outside of the socialist bubble. And that's what DSA is trying to do, and I think is what any individual should be doing, is talking to people you don't normally talk to. Um, processing grief and fear, and then moving beyond it through collective action. Um, and that can be anything, you know, frankly, if you're new to political action, I think getting together over a potluck to just talk about how people are feeling and what they're afraid of is like a very important first step because you're building community. Um, and even if, you know, you're building community of, with like slightly different political perspectives, it, it, it helps build uh, a broader understanding of what's at stake. At least a dialogue. Yeah. Um, and then obviously moving to collective action. And for some people, you know, people really, people on the left um, criticize the liberals for saying love trumps hate. And for me, I think it's a very important message because for a lot of people, that's their entry point into politics. Um, and in a moment like this, like yesterday, there were like death threats or bomb threats phoned into like 27 Jewish centers across the country. And like that's a moment where like, yeah, I want a liberal to show up at a rally against that. It's an important first step. Um, I mean, what Trump is doing is um, testing the public's reaction and um, Somebody going to a rally about that is the first step. Um, doing it as a group is even better, and that's why you want to talk to your neighbors. Um, ultimately, bird-dogging, I think, in local districts is very, very important, and that means bird-dogging the uh, right-wing Republicans, and that also means bird-dogging the neoliberal Cory Booker Democrats mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the things that DSA is really focused on, and I've said this like five times, but organizing the unorganized. Mm -hmm. Because an elected official does not care about predictable left-wing voters or predictable right-wing voters. What they care about is people that are newly engaged, that are unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So um, bringing new people into the political process is important, like going to town hall meetings and, and telling stories about white health care. You know, the personal story about the impact of um, cuts to health care mm -hmm. is very important. Um, and those are sort of like the most obvious first steps. Like if, you know, reach even an individual, as an individual or with a group of your neighbors that you've organized, you could yourselves reach out to a mosque or an immigrant, like a Latino church or whatever um, in solidarity and ask, what can we do? Um, but I think building these really tight networks of essentially building a rapid response network mm -hmm where you have existing relationships and you have a mechanism to communicate and you touch base frequently and you're also ready to respond when needed is really important. And then alongside that, engaging in the political work of um, calling elected officials, um, dropping in at their offices is like really scary for them. If you go to the district office without an appointment, it's like people are so upset about this, they're just stopping into my office. That's actually quite effective. Um, going to town hall meetings so you can look on their their, um, you can call their office and ask when their town hall meetings, or you can look, they sometimes post them. Writing letters to the editor, calling into radio shows, um, and those are some of the big things. Like in rural areas, people actually get a lot of their news from each other, so like making a point of talking to a broad range of people, um, particularly speaking to community influentials is really important. Um, organizing within existing um, institutions. So. For example, in a lot of suburban and um, rural communities, like the firehouse, the volunteer firehouse, mm -hmm. is like, and the library, are, and the schools are like three sort of like organized, and churches, of course, 
those are institutions that exist, and some of them are very conservative, and sometimes they're not. So, working through those institutions um, is another thing to do. Yes. Yes. Um, so, in the coming protests and demonstrations that we're about to see in the next couple of days, what is DSA's role been, and where do you guys see your role going forward then? So we've been working here. Uh, we have an office in New York, or an office in D.C., and a, a chapter of the Metro Washington D.C. DSA chapter. So we've been working directly with the Disrupt J20 Collective really closely um, to prepare. And we have a lot of DSA folks coming in from around the country. So we're doing some private events, and and then we're participating as part of these mass uh, protests against Trump. Uh, we're both going to participate on Inauguration Day and also during the Women's March. Um, as We're a very socialist feminist organization, and uh, we think it's an important intervention to make both within the socialist movement. There's a lot of class um, essentialism, which is problematic, and it's certainly an important intervention to make in the neoliberal feminist movement. Um, so we've endorsed the women's strike, um, and we are participating in the Women's March um, because we consider, you know, women's labor, um, understanding the intersection of patriarchy and capitalism is really important for us as democratic socialists. Um, and so we are definitely participating in, in those things broadly as well. A better symbol of that than Donald Trump. I don't think Ugh. that intersection you're talking yes, about. Yes, and in just so many ways, just every way. So, yeah. Yeah. What would you say... Uh, so speaking for DSA, but also for yourself, what are the biggest dangers that we need mm. to be mm. cognitive of going forward with a Trump administration? Mm. So I think, number one, um, he could take a very authoritarian turn quickly. We need to be aware of that. Um, he's going to go after labor, and unions are the only independent working mass working class organization in this country, and they're going to attack them immediately. Um, we certainly know they're going to pass policy changes uh, like cutting uh, the affordable, destroying the Affordable Care Act and cutting taxes on the wealthy at the same time, so it will be impossible to provide health care for people in the future. Um, impossible. Mm -hmm. um, those are things we need to look out for. Um, but w frankly, we also need to again, what I said before, sort of fight on two fronts. The neoliberals are incapable of winning this battle. And I think it's important to distinguish between the inside the beltway neoliberals mm -hmm. and the mass progressive movement. And certainly there are connections there. But um, I think we need to be going after the neoliberal politicians that capitulate to Trump as well as the GOP. Um, and we need to be supporting the progressives and we need to be working with the progressive mass movements um, rather than isolating ourselves from, you know, the movements of people because um, Trump will be going after very vulnerable populations um, and he will be trying to divide us. And uh, if the left um, is not effective at building a multiracial movement, essentially a neo-rainbow movement, a multiracial movement, building um, ties between the Bernie grassroots and working class and poor communities of color, um, which, you know, was sort of the Achilles heel. If, if the left is not successful at dealing with that, we will lose this battle, and we don't know what the future holds, frankly. Um, so, you know, I think those are the, 
the dangers to watch out for. It just made me think of another question I had talked to somebody else about, but sort of historically, the class struggle and the civil rights struggle have always kind of ran in parallel, if not always together. But it seems, so in my study of history, that at some point they diverge, or the civil rights uh, got kind of co-opted by the neoliberal agenda, and it became kind of their main thing, and the class struggle became, like you said, sort of a marginalized thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think it's going to take, or do you think there's already moves to try to bring those two back together Mm -hmm. in in a new progressive movement? So... I do think that there are moves, and DSA is certainly part of the moves to do that. Uh, the same thing happened with the feminist movement um, and sort of neoliber- the rise of neoliberal feminism. Um, and I think in some ways Trump forces will force people to work together. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the folks inside the Beltway and like the national leadership of the establishment democratic organizations – they do not have a base um, the way we are at the base. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to do what they're going to do. And our job is to organize people. Um, and the only thing that works to bring people together and build coalition is having each other's back. Mm-hmm. So what we in DSA see as our job is building bridges because we're a multi-issue organization. And we see how all the issues are connected Um, So we actually consider it to be a really important role to bring folks together and to not repel everyone, right, all of the kind of newly activated um, people that want to resist Trump. We want to bring them in. Um, And, you know, we can target the neoliberal Democrats as much as we target the GOP. um, But it's almost, um, it's, it's like what happens what we can control is what happens at the grassroots, and the grassroots is where these connections are made. So that's where we're going to focus our energy. Um, what happens nationally is important, but it's much less important than than tangible relationships that people build. Something that I've also been noticing, or that I've kind of maybe foresee if I'm allowed to do that, um, is like you're saying, sort of the more neoliberal Beltway Democrats, we can call them that. And this has probably been going on for a long time, but it seems to me that they have a way of taking credit for the work that people, you know, organizations like the DSA, people on the progressive left, do on the grassroots level. But then once it comes to electoral politics, they're able to somehow snatch up all the credit for mm, that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any like concrete examples or ways that you guys are thinking of to to block that in a, in a certain way? Well, there's only so much we can control, and we can't. So there's some aspects of the discourse that we can't control. And, you know, somebody is always trying to take credit, whether from the far left or from the neoliberals. Um, That's not something I think we can control other than doing our own media, which I think is important, Um, supporting independent media and also, you know, in-house, you know, independent media. Um, But I don't don't think that we're going to be able to to stop anyone from taking credit. Um, I just think it's, you know, yes, we can work with, sort of progressive and left media to try to highlight what's happening at the grassroots. But I've, you know, I've come to realize that the sort of leadership, the in, I keep using the phrase, the establishment, the, in, mm-hmm. the inside the beltway leadership, mm-hmm. even of the progressive movement, are just so out of touch. Like, so they'll, they'll try to take credit for things, but everybody, know, everybody else around the country knows that they're not the ones that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost, you know, it's like irrelevant what Rachel Maddow is saying, right? right? Because if you're at the grassroots organizing people, 
yeah, she beams into more houses, but you're the ones who are actually engaging in conversations with people. Um, it's not entirely irrelevant, but um, it's not something we can control, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and the way, the way to undercut that is independent organization. So that's, that's the whole point of DSA is we build an independent organization that does electoral work as well as non-electoral work and actually builds a base between elections. And we're, you know, we're looking at um, case studies of other groups that were able to successfully withstand the onslaught. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, the campaign to get Sheriff Arpaio out of office in Arizona is a really good case study understand how to build, to empower the most disempowered um, and build a base and engage in both direct action issue campaigns and electoral work and build something independent. Um, so yeah, that got some media coverage, but didn't get a ton of media coverage, but it's almost irrelevant because they now have some degree of power Results in Arizona. Right. right. So maybe I'm being a little too naive about it, but... No, I <laughs> Concentrating more on the results instead of who gets credit for what. Yeah, and you know, I think the in some ways the results will speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like we're not going after like rich liberal money, so yeah, we want the coverage, but you know, we're going to grow through organization. We're not going to grow through getting like twenty million dollars to like you know get our message out. And did you guys? Was there any? Know how to put through? Was there an education uh, sort of after post Bernie Sanders and how he was able to really galvanize and fundraise like we've never seen that kind of fundraising before in such an independent level? Mm -hmm. Was that something that you kind of everybody woke up like, oh, okay, we can actually compete as long as we reach out? Um, well, I think there wasn't really a lesson to groups like DSA because mm -hmm. we. So the thing about Bernie was he, he was a challenge to the establishment in the same way that anyone is a challenge to any institution that has an establishment. Mm -hmm. um, and he showed that he could be independent. So it was more of a lesson to them than for us. Mm -hmm. um, I, think for, I think for the left, the lesson is that if, you're not me, me, if you reach masses of people with a message that resonates, then you can mobilize masses of people in contrast with not reaching masses of people with a message that does not resonate, which is usually what the left does. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, from our perspective, it's really um, realizing you need to speak American um, and you need to be swimming in the ocean, the mass of people, not in your own like little socialist coffee shop. Well, that was Maria Svart, uh, National Director of Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, I'm here now with Randy M. Salo, my co-producer, partner in crime. Hey, Blake. Fellow traveler. How's it going, man? Yeah, great interview. Um, uh, yeah. You guys covered really a lot of ground, and I think the for me the 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 takeaway was was definitely like how she nailed like mm -hmm. all the stuff that was coming, and and you know since yeah. we're talking about these interviews that you did four years ago in 2020, mm. you know right now we just had the first debate of the presidential um, election. It's a and very loose, loosely, let's call it a debate. A loose debate. Um, <laughs> Whatever that was. Everybody, you know, recognizes as a major shit show. And, mm. you know, like listening to her words and all the things that have happened in the four years feels so relevant um, yeah. now. And absolutely. And not knowing what the future holds. It's far 2020. Will. Yeah, it's, it's far 2020, right? <laughs> um, yeah, agreed. 
It's always weird going back to them. Like over the years, you find something new every time, you know. And even I was sitting there and didn't, you know. Of course, you don't realize. And yep. It's just yeah. I think with interviewing, actually, just to, to make a little filmmaker nerdy mm-hmm. thing, it's sometimes hard to always be totally in the moment, yeah. like really capture every word when mm-hmm. you're doing the interview because you're spending so much time thinking about. Yeah how to engage and how to follow right. up and what you want to like, where you want to go with the right. thing. So when you go back and re-listen to it, then yeah, you like find all those, those totally true, nuggets. Because yeah. when you're sitting down with them, you're still kind of have your filmmaker brain on too. So you're thinking about all the things that you need to get in the can, right? So yep. yeah, you're totally right. So that's why this podcast also has been a really great exercise in, in reliving those, those, those interviews again. And really, yeah. I learned so much every time. Perfectly honest. Blake, you brought up a question in the interview, and it, mm-hmm. it actually made it made me wonder. Um, you, you talked about, I mean, you both talked about how Glenn Beck during the Obama mm-hmm. years was like, you know, trying to call Obama a socialist, mm-hmm. which, you know, in hindsight is like yeah. strange, a you know, point, because yeah. we, you know, it, it was clearly like the wrong kind of attack, you right. know? And I was just wondering if... First of all, I mean, she suggested that it gave the DSA more visibility mm-hmm. and maybe brought more visibility to this term of socialism. Sure. I mean, do you think they did themselves a disservice by kind of like like pushing socialism back into the mainstream in a way by mm-hmm. by trying to, to... Yeah, I think that was the, the irony of that whole section because I, I mean, I have a, a little anecdote about Glenn Beck, but... I think, yeah, that was the reverse effect is like what Maria talks about is that even something that's not maybe in spirit or in technicality, a socialist program, but if it does anything to move, you know, economic justice or anything, you know, take a little bit away from those in power, yeah, it's immediately labeled socialist. And we talk about this in the series too, that it, they've been using this kind of boogeyman, the socialist boogeyman for so long. I mean, and then Glenn Beck, I think, was, he's like an example of, I think, what eventually, like, how the right wing took this, like, extreme turn to, like, hyperbolic, it doesn't matter what we say as long as, like, the whole birtherism and Obama's a communist dictator, Tea Party, all that stuff. Yeah. Was, Yeah. Some kind of weird reaction. I still don't fully understand. I think this weird reactionary thing to the idea that like somebody that's not, you know, that doesn't have like the nice Anglo name and fits into this certain idea of what a president's supposed to be just completely like I don't think Glenn Beck would have ever come to be if Obama hadn't been president, for example. Like if that hadn't happened, I don't think Glenn Beck would have reached the kind of influence that he has. And yeah. And then, yeah, just going off the deep end with, like, everything with some expanded socialist communist plot. I know for people like me growing up, it was kind of like, well, hmm, what what plot are we talking about here? Like, yeah. can I get in on that? <laughs> yeah, what about, like, public schools or yeah, um, exactly. the post office or... Well, you I mean, know. that's the whole right-wing thing is we don't get into the details. Yeah. Like, we don't actually, like, talk about anything. It's... Yeah. I mean, they use it as a as a scare tactic, exactly. right? And, I mean, yeah. you saw it just on Tuesday during the debates Absolutely. where when they talked about health care, mm-hmm. um, all, all Trump could medicine. say was, a it's tr- socialist right. health care, you right. know? And, and, I mean, it's... Um, 
I mean, that's all they got, I guess, yeah. in the end, right? Well, and it seems like they really haven't gotten the memo that, uh, you know, I think, you know, our age and younger, we've all grown up seeing like, well, Scandinavian countries are socialist yep. for the most part. A majority of European countries have some socialist program within their policies. Yeah. I mean, you and I, uh, we're both Especially, expats, yeah. uh, but we live in a socialist democracy. Yeah. Uh, in Germany, yeah. and we've experienced the benefits of that. Absolutely, and no, no system is perfect, of course. And of course. here, you also have a rise in in right wing and mm-hmm. anti immigration mm-hmm. and racism mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I mean, in in the case of Germany, it's it's harder to say like why that's so strong here because there's not as much economic injustice um, unless you start getting into the weeds with like the east and west parts of Germany where east... There's a lot of historical baggage probably to do that. I mean, mean, it's like every place is different and unique and has to be, you know, uh, approached differently. But yeah, on the main issues, like there's just some... (laughs) This is for another podcast, wink, wink. but yeah, I mean, just the programs that she brings up, the we talk about it in the series as well, is that there's just so many things that align with maybe people aren't socialists, but they definitely yeah. agree with the Democratic Socialists of America much more than they agree with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party on a lot of things. Um, there's a few things in episode three of The Resistance where mm-hmm. you talk about some of the things that the public in the U.S., generally favors that mm-hmm. are like sort of socialist. Are yeah. there are there a few of those that you could talk about now? Uh, yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head are, are the main ones, but like a, fifth, a, a livable wage, like the notion that wages have not increased, I think at this point now has become mainstreamed that everybody knows that. And that's been a socialist, I mean, obviously a socialist policy point for generations. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's one off the top of my head that there's mass consensus that there needs to be something done about wages. They're just not keeping up with inflation or cost of living, which yeah. are kind of tied together. Um, uh, I mean, I would say like drug legislation, the war on drugs has always been from the sixties till now, a big, a big, uh, policy position of, of the left and socialists in particular, because most people that are that, especially in the sixties and the movement that were getting hauled away, were getting hauled off on drug charges. Yep. Marijuana charges because it puts you in jail and shuts you up, and now you're not on the street organizing. Right, and that's still a blight and that's on still, a lot yeah. of the poor citizens exactly. of the U.S., right. for instance. And it, and it kept a lot of those communities from being able to organize over those 10, 20. Like, it's just another way of like blocking progress for a generation is you just throw a whole bunch of people in jail. Yeah, yeah. and, and then them. benefit off their labor. Exactly. Off and then, their free yeah, labor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, Medicare for all. I mean... It, it's still shocking to me how, you know, when I was first getting involved and kind of looking at these movements and these groups, the idea of Medicare for all was like, you know, in 2008 when Obama was running for president was just crazy talk. Yeah. And so extreme. And now it's become so mainstream. And I, I think DSA deserves some credit for that. They were definitely early on and continually pushing that as one of their main policy platforms. Like all of their members are always pushing that. As I say, one place you always see DSA, and she talks about it, is on social media. If you go to Twitter, you will very easily find plethora of DSA members and caucuses and you know committees and and just the amount of programs that they do 
it just seems to me like they're so community-based. Like the one over the years that's always drawn my attention and I think is just so perfect for what it symbolizes too is they have in a lot of the chapters um, this service where you can come in and they'll for free uh, fix your like license plate light, your tail light, <laughs> right? Because if anybody doesn't know, that's like a pretty... Uh, an excuse that police will often use to like pull you over and screw with you and yeah. check if you have warrants and yeah. all those fun things. So they made that a community service, right? And that's going back to what she talks about a lot too in the organizing and organize. It's just a way for people to interface with a socialist, you know, to like take away some of that boogeyman of like, oh, these people are just people who have happen to have a point of view, but these people are like helping me out in my day-to-day life, I can't remember the last time, like, the Democratic Party, for example, was out there on the street doing things like that in the community, right? Yeah. And I think this is the point that gets made by a lot of interviews is that the main issue with the Democratic Party writ large is that they're not in the street. They're not, they don't have a grassroots movement, really. They don't have, like, a base in the sense that DSA has a base of people that they're, like, talking to all the time. Yeah. Like she says, like they're in the local, the ultra local movement. So yeah, okay. The Democrats might have a much bigger megaphone with their media and everything, but on your day-to-day life, the hope is, you know, with all the recruitment drives and everything, you're going to come in contact with the socialists probably more often than you would like a diehard, you know, Joe Biden Democrat. Yeah. I mean, she, she taught you, you, you mentioned it earlier and we're getting into it now, but Mm -hmm. she talks a bit about like how... The left doesn't have a mass base, yeah. And um, I was wondering what you thought about about that because she alludes to like a lot of bad blood and mm-hmm. you know like infighting between groups. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you thought m- maybe this happens because on the left um, you have a lot of like marginalized groups yeah. separately Absolutely. fighting for their rights. Yeah. Um, and often those things may not come together because there's not like a unifying principle. Mm-hmm. Like you have racism and right. gay rights right. and yeah, rights for healthcare, yeah. minimum wage, all of these things. Right. Whereas, um, and, and it's also multicultural, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the left, because yeah. you have a lot of uh, a more marginalized groups of different race who, who create all these smaller, yeah, like groups that want that it's harder to like put them together. Yeah. Whereas I feel like on the right, it's just like white culture. Yeah. And like, and they have like an easier way to get into this hive mind thing that I, you know, that sounds dismissive, but you, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's, I, 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 I get the sense that like the, the Trump's America tends to be more like white Anglo-Saxon Christian, right. And that's maybe easier because it feels, for them, maybe it feels like all these other groups that are demanding mm-hmm. rights is an attack on right. their one singular... At least that's how they interpret it, right? That's is, how they... Yeah. yeah. Any any uh, ability to, like, say, sorry, you can't bring your religion into this public space is somehow, like, an invasion of their private space, you know? And, you know, we can go on and on about how their arguments are basically hypocritical, but... Um, I think you're right. I think, again, this is something that comes up over and over in the interviews is that we're at a point where we need to be able to bring all of these issues into one home. Like a lot of people use that word too as like a political home. We hear it all the time, especially on the left is 
with Bernie, I think a lot of people had that feeling of like, ah, okay, finally there's like a place, a movement, a organization, whatever. Yeah. Which is kind of all inclusive in a way. Inclusive, exactly. Like he's talking about all of these same issues. And in a lot of ways, I think the, like what she talks about too, is the education of it. Because there is truth that, you know, for years, I think because it was so marginalized, like a lot of these groups were able to operate separate of each other. And she talks about how people kind of become, you know, the big fish in a small pond kind of thing where you've built this thing and it's your special, you know, movement. Yeah. And so the real challenge, I think that we learned coming out of this whole thing, the real challenge is being able to keep things grassroots because it's important that they're their own autonomous things because they're the ones that are best able to like make those decisions in their community. Yeah. But figure out a way to really tie those tie those people together, like she was saying, like tie those those uh, movements together. Yeah. And that, that they're all connected. And I think once any of us, like once you make that connection that like, right, the environment and the economy are connected. Like, and if we don't address like the deep economic divides and the like injustice in the economy, it's going to be like 20 times harder to actually make any kind of dent that we need to make in the environment and right. the climate change. The same with the connection between racism, racism and exactly. econo- economic it's, injustice. It's all connected. You know, when we talk about reparations, that's an economic, you know, problem. That's yep. a problem that there was generational economic, you know, disparity. Disparity. And and so I think once more and more people, and I think it's happening, I mean, maybe not as fast as some of us would like, but I think it is happening that people, I mean, and in a lot of ways, the Trump regime has brought that on. You know, he, I think Kevin Z says it in one of the interviews, he brought all this stuff to the surface of the racism, the misogyny, the fascism, you know, the like overt authoritarian kind of, thing and now most people are going like oh right yeah our system has left an open door for this kind of mm-hmm. thing and uh, i have to believe that more people of conscience are gonna become aware of the the similarities in the struggles instead of the things that keep us apart because i mean it is true the more that we are fighting about the small details instead of focusing on the bigger issues that we all agree on yeah the more the Trumps of the world and, and, you know, the people that are trying to maintain the status quo are going to be able to succeed in what they're doing. And maybe this is why it's harder to sometimes reach um, the Trump base um, yeah. because there's a lot of education that mm-hmm. has, that goes into mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, empathy as well, going into yeah. like all these different struggles, which you may not feel them directly yourselves. Right. Um, you know, maybe being a you know a white middle aged man in the Midwest, right. you may not understand what it's like to be harassed by the police. You right. may not understand economic injustice mm-hmm. if your business does well. Mm-hmm. These sorts of things. So, like needing to be educated on why the climate affects you, right. why you know economic injustice affects you in the end. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the, the 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 one of the challenges of like reaching more people Absolutely. and yeah. um, bringing them yeah. over in a way. Yeah, and I think like what she says is that it's just being like putting a visual, a visible, sorry, visible socialist in these spaces where usually that wouldn't be is where that conversation starts because like you said, you're never going to convince a Trump supporter by coming out with like your, you know, class conscious, you know, economic analysis is not going to be like the thing yeah. that's going to convince them. But I found like in my experience, it was just like going to an anti-war protest when I was a kid and then like 
seen somebody who was outwardly like a socialist and claiming socialism was like, well, you can do that. That's a thing. And that leads you to like wanting to know more. Right. And I think the more that, because there are definitely, you know, I know in my own circle, people who, I don't know if they were Trump supporters, I don't want to throw in the bus, but who could, who would probably fit into whatever mold that like the political handlers are trying to find as a Trump supporter. But they're like union, like hardcore labor guys or, 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 you know, people who are looking for that kind of like, uh, what's the word we were using with, uh, it's like confrontational, you know, but strategic approach. Like they don't, cause like what Maria says is something that I've always struggled with on the left is there's no, like, it doesn't feel like you're taking it seriously sometimes when you're dealing with a lot of organizations on the left. It's just kind of a place for people to go and hear themselves talk. Yeah. Right. And what I think DSA provides and what a lot of the, you know, I'd say even social terms provides is like a real place to go and feel like you're actually doing something, like you're involved with something that's building, you know, this political home we talk about. And yeah. I mean, I would encourage people just to go on the website and, and see what they're doing. I mean, they're still, I was just looking at their, so they're just, they're organizing a next recruitment drive. So their last Congress. So I, the last numbers I had were from uh, the Rosen Luxemburg Stiftung in New York did uh, a study because the DSA doesn't make their numbers public, but they did a study kind of following it and uh, according to them, as of 2019, they were up to 56,000. We have to assume it's grown since then. And uh, on their website, they've made a goal for themselves to have 100,000 members by 2021. So they're having a recruitment drive kicking off, I think, middle of this month. Oh, okay. Um, so sign up if you're yeah. I mean, if, if you're interested, check in it out. I mean, I would. She didn't get all the way into it, but I mean, it, this this notion of like multiracial, multi tendencies, yeah, you know, multi-generational, multi-generational. I mean, this is, if you go to their website, if you follow any of like the leadership on social media, it's, it's very clear and you see it in, in what they're able to do. And I mean, just in their, what they were able to do in New York around the AOC campaign, for example, was yep. monumental. I mean, it was, and they, and the, the thing about them that I really do appreciate is they're willing to work with anybody that has like yeah, in-line ideals. So they work with our revolution. They'll work with Justice uh, Democrats, they want change, right? And I think that's the party program, or not the party program, but the program from their end is like, we just want to move the ball forward and we're not so hung up on, right? Yeah. The purity test. And that what I was getting to is like in inside the DSA, there are like multiple caucuses for like anybody's kind of, Version of version of socialism, you know, yeah. or or where that's supposed to go. The dem- but always with the idea that it's democratic. So your version of socialism is not the version of socialism, right? Yeah. You have to be willing to compromise and to, you know, work with other people and their ideas within this larger tent. And you know, for me, that was like a huge epiphany. That was what was missing a lot of times when you're coming up in these sort of movements and and seeing how it all shakes out. I think the like militancy of it is the first attraction, but then you're kind of always like, okay, well then for example, the parties like the green party, you feel like they only kind of pop out every four years, but they're not like building in between. Yeah. Right? 
there's not like a program that's like keeping me involved and you know on the ground working in the inside of the community to make a new a new political reality you know it's it's a different strategy i think and and i think that was what i always get away from i always get from maria's interview is this strategic inside outside approach of we'll do campaigns will help so-and-so get into Congress because that's, of course, if you're not there, then you have no voice, right? Yeah. But they don't, like, sit back and and not hit the street. They don't, they have tons of direct action campaigns, you know, calling for strikes, calling for boycotts, all the other things. So, again, I would encourage people, if you're looking for a place to, to call your home, you know, you, you can be a Democrat and be a part of the Democratic Socialists of America. You know? Yeah, I mean, you can be a Bernie yeah, supporter exactly. or a Bernie, like, yeah. you know, one of Bernie's It's supporters. not a party, so it doesn't mean that you're somehow, like, uh, yeah, unable now to, to work within the de- Democratic Party or not. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody telling you what, what you're supposed to do. It's simply a place for you to go and have a voice within. Because it keeps coming back to it, like, think about all of... Anybody out there who's like a Democrat, when was the last time the Democratic Party asked for your opinion? Yeah. You know? And if you go to the DSA, like you you have an opinion there. Like your opinion matters. They're actually interested in learning from, from what you have to think. Yeah. I mean, uh, just thinking about like the messaging of DSA mm-hmm. and like, you know, Democratic socialist ideas. Um, yeah. Bernie certainly went a long way in making um, these ideas like palpable and mm-hmm. also palatable for mm-hmm. a lot of people, okay. like reaching like a lot of those those union people mm-hmm. that you're talking about, the people that want change, that see that there's economic injustice, but, you know, could easily go towards like a Trump yeah. or they could like go towards a Bernie. Yeah. And I feel like Bernie like fought the good fight and saying like, hey, look, look at Europe, you know, they, mm-hmm. they have democratic yeah. socialism and yeah. they're not yeah. tyrannies, you right. know even though we kind of have the opposite and we're a tyranny in <laughs> yeah, America. Right. Um, but do you do you feel like Bernie uh, was a good messenger for the DSA in this case? Absolutely. I think, I mean, she says it to an extent and to a person that we talked to, the Bernie campaign was a huge uh, lightning rod for a lot of people on the left. And in this, like in her terms, organizing the unorganized, I think Bernie's campaign for a lot of us, I mean, us included, was like this first time like, oh, like, find somebody who's like actually saying the words that I is speaking my language, so to say, is finally out there. And I think it just galvanized a bunch of people. And again, like these people are, once Bernie was kind of taken out, it left this huge void and there's this huge vacuum still. I mean, I think there's a lot of organizing around Joe Biden for the fact that it's like, if we don't get rid of that asshole, then there's just no... The movement becomes like a much harder, harder pull after that. But there's no like enthusiasm for him. There's still this vacuum of like leadership, maybe on the left, people looking for some kind of leadership. Personally, I think it's probably going to come from like an AOC or, or some of these uh, women that have gotten into Congress because it's, that's where the energy is at. They're again speaking our language, they're speaking to us and not like talking around us or just using the hashtags, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, they're aligned with the DSA and the DSA works with them. And, and again, I just feel like there's just, like we kind of keep bringing up in the, in the series and on the podcast all the time, there's just so many things that are in common. 
yeah. that we could work together on. And once you work together, then you build those bonds and now you have a mass movement. Now you have a huge movement of people that you can threaten any politician with, you know? Do you think, I mean, um, one of the last questions I have is, do you think that um, there is a problem in America that like ideologies, um, like this, the, the idea of socialism mm. versus individualism mm -hmm. is so problematic because this is kind of what we've been teaching our kids yeah. over, you know, generations that although we're the United States, mm -hmm. everything is about, you know, you can do whatever right. you want, you you as an individual. Right. And I feel like what a lot of people embrace about Trump is him like doing exactly what he wants. Right. I mean, even with the tax thing, now that we yeah. know that he only paid a few bucks in taxes. So a little furious that this is not like a huge, <laughs> yeah. like I don't well, understand not... why this is not a bigger story for everybody. And I mean, he even criticized, um, you know, Amazon in the past, yeah. like a lot about, oh, they, they're not paying any of their fair share of taxes and yeah. stuff like this. And, and it's clear that neither has, has he. Yeah. And, um, but people are like, like no, 10, he's a businessman. He didn't pay taxes. You know, and taxes are, are kind of what you need to have socialism in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. you, we pay more taxes in Germany, but then we have great roads. Yeah. We have cheap healthcare. We have right. cheap Child kindergartens. Care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, so you, you actually see what you're, what you get yeah. for your money, where yeah. I feel like in America, you know, people complain about taxes so much because they, they probably don't see what they get right. for the money, you know? Well, this is why CNN has to have, like, a big show-and-tell of all the latest weapons we're fucking around with, you know? Because then people can see where all their tax money is going. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at this giant fucking missile we bought. With yeah. All of that money we took from you people. Yeah. And you don't have childcare. Exactly. You don't have a pandemic response. And, um, and I mean, the pandemic has actually brought out this sort of individualism stuff too, right? right. This idea that freedom mm -hmm. is somehow like personal freedom and, mm -hmm. you and know. And not a add, collective like responsibility. Right? Yeah. It's not like a freedom that we are protecting so mm -hmm. that everybody can live in a safe place, yeah. uh, you know, with their, with their, with each individual idea. It's more like my personal safety and my personal, right. um, you know, freedom trumps everybody else's yeah. things. Yeah. Well, it's like the American paradox, and especially on the right, it's this, we're all together as long as you agree and do exactly and look and, you know, exactly the way we do and we say. Yeah. Then we can be united. If not, then it's not going to work. Like you had, it's, I can't remember who, I'll have to look it up. Uh, it came out pretty early on, but just they did a study of, authoritarian tendencies, right, and in voters, and it was, I think, like 80% or something of, especially like Trump voters, but Republicans in general are more authoritarian, like they want a government that rules by decree, essentially, like that this is the way it is, this is how we're doing it, and everybody should get in line or get the fuck out, right? And we've heard that, I mean, this yeah. is, I mean, when the report came out, it's like not surprising in a lot of ways, it's kind of alarming to see it with those words, but the attitude I think all of us have experienced at one point of the that line, right? If you don't like it, then get the fuck out. Yeah. Unless, of course, you don't like, I don't know, I can think of, if you don't like the, you know, the liberal stuff, then of course you can bitch about that. But if you have a problem with like being flooded with guns or... Or war. Let's or talk, war I mean, I remember general. during Iraq, you <laughs> yeah. know, like there was, was like this one. push for patriotism yeah. and, you know, oh, this younger Love generation, you know, they don't know, you know, back in World War II, everybody mm -hmm. got around and like there was mm -hmm. a war effort. We did the thing. But I mean, people saw the hypocrisy in the Iraq yeah. war and yeah. they, 
they opposed it just like they did in Vietnam. And people often say like the generation of World War II were like selfless and stuff like that mm. because they got together for it. I mean, they were fighting fascism, which we're yeah. dealing with, with again communists, now. Yeah, by the way, with communists. With communists. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, but when you talk about it now, I mean, you can't use this argument that that um you know that the that that um, you, like young people don't come together or like the new generation is selfish because what you actually yeah, right. see great point is yeah. people on that on the patriotic side the right yeah. uh the moral right of putting of everybody the country, in danger <laughs> putting everybody in danger because they can't come together during the pandemic yeah. Uh, yeah. and give up their a little bit of their individual yeah. freedom to not wear right. a freaking mask yeah. and uh protect one another right. so i mean that argument for me is no yeah. 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 I mean, in general, if we ever had any notion of like the credibility of people on the right is like, it's just gone now. Like, right. I mean, it's just this huge pile of hypocrites. And like you said, Trump can criticize anybody about not paying their fair share or this, that, the other thing, but he is somehow magically <laughs> like untouchable yeah, on the same exact things. And that the, you know, the people that follow him don't can't put that together is beyond me i i mean look look at like uh, so also during the debate how he like you know in the most can't follow the basic rules that well, he agreed to i mean exactly. i guess we should have seen that coming but yeah, it's just I mean, kind of like so undignified i mean i don't mean to be that guy but there is a certain amount of like when you he gets up on TV and it's something like that, like I remember the first thing I heard about the debates was the next morning on you know the German news, the Bayern Zwei, talking about it, and I just had my hands in my face the whole time because it was so fucking embarrassing. Yeah, to like have the Germans having to explain to German people how this how the president of the United States was essentially being like a petulant child and an asshole. Yeah, on national television, and this is supposed to be our politics, you know, like. And I think most Americans that, you know, or a lot of Americans don't really understand that that is fucking kind of terrifying to people around the world that our politics have been reduced to this like weird name calling and I mean, bullshit. Like it was just this like endless hose of bullshit from the minute he opened his mouth. Yeah. I mean, it's also like him and his, his people attacking, uh, Biden unfairly mm. about like Hunter mm-hmm. Biden and stuff and like yeah, oh how he disgusting. made all this money. I mean it's just disgusting yeah. and also you know his whole family has benefited his, his, his whole his whole organization has yeah. benefited like seventy eight million right. uh, in overseas taxes paid right. in the last two years. You know right. like a lot of governments are getting money from yeah. him and we're not getting and we're any getting shit. He's so, taking money from us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this goes to there was one line she said that. I think should be a, a like a a recruitment tool is she said uh joining DS joining the DSA means that you're willing you're taking a stand you're going to stand up to the bullies right yeah and I think this is another thing that needs to be said is standing up as a socialist means that you're standing up to, to the, the fascism to the fascism to the trumps of the world the people the authoritarians the authoritarians that you're not afraid to say like no this is fucked up this cannot go on yeah. this is not right yeah and, you know, what you want to call yourself, what you want to put on your social media is obviously up to everybody. But if you do think of yourself as a socialist, I would also encourage you to don't shy away from the label. Like like Maria says, it's it's useful 
to show to people that like, hey, man, being a socialist doesn't mean that I'm like going to, you know, it doesn't mean all the right wing hyperbole that is allowed to kind of permeate the media. Yep. It's, if you really get into it and learn it, there's a huge, a long tradition, a lot of different ideas. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to preach too much on like converting people, but I think it's, it's, if it's something you believe in, you shouldn't be afraid to say who you are. I think the challenge is, again, like this individualism versus mm-hmm. uh, the idea of doing things for the collective good, because yeah. it's when, when Trump on stage says socialist health care, right. what he's trying to say is you no longer have the choice right. your for choice your away. provider, which, yeah. was, uh, uh, which was false. Yeah. Which Biden's, is kind of true now, because if you move or, you know, your, your hospital changes providers or whatever, you know. Yeah. The plethora of things that could change your healthcare situation. Yeah. I mean, things that are, I mean, and you can also like, things have to be a network in order for you to recover. So if you have to go for an emergency and the anesthesiologist isn't a network, guess guess what? You're paying the full bill. Yeah. So, I mean, so much for your choice. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have a choice sometimes. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to these, like when they use this term socialism, what they're trying to say is you no longer have this personal freedom, which mm-hmm. is the thing that you see mm-hmm. the nastiest side mm-hmm. of right now mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the pandemic yeah. is that people are so afraid that they won't have this like freedom that yeah. they can't. And I think that that's maybe the challenge is to show people that it's not just like your choice to buy this thing or your right. choice to have this thing. It's more like when everybody's doing good, Right. Then everybody benefits. Well, it's always the notion of like in a capitalist system, everything is kind of perpetuated on different levels of exploitation, right? Yep. You have to exploit exploit people's economic situation, their social situation, their political situation in order to get what you want to get the next thing that you need to move the market and the invisible hand and blah, blah, blah. So the notion that like we're all freer in this system is kind of bullshit because it's perpetuated on exploitation. So you yep. have to be in a in a position to be leaned on. Yeah. If everybody is from the get-go at some, like, your basic needs are met level, yep. that's where freedom happens because now you're making choices based on what you want and not what the boss wants. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's really hard. I don't know why. <laughs> it's really hard to get people beyond this notion of, like, Oh well, if you get fired, you have that's you know, or you have a choice to go somewhere else. This idea, without even like acknowledging that like a lot of low wage jobs are purely based on exploiting economic conditions in those neighborhoods. Absolutely, or you in know? those countries, for instance. In those countries, I mean, yeah. those choices that you have to buy cheaper produce no. or cheaper clothing exactly. means someone somewhere yeah. in the world is right. getting ripped off right. so that you can have stuff cheaper. Yeah. Right. Or that you can have like 20 different brands of cereal or whatever it is. That's a choice. It's a fake choice, but it's a choice that you're making, but then like impacts, it takes away choice from somebody else. And then, it, I mean, it's just like capitalism to me is always like the mob, right? Like all the good sh- money goes uphill and all the shit goes downhill, you yeah. know? And that's, to me, is not freedom. Like, I don't know how... Uh, how that can be defined as anything like approaching like a real free society because you're always going to be at the will of somebody on the other side of the country, you know, for example. And the basic notion of like there is some public good. I mean, that's the other thing is like on the right. So as we were saying, the example of how Medicare for all was like relatively quickly mainstreamed, my opinion, 
on the right, you also have these like really like retrograde ideas that are also getting mainstream. This notion that like people are outwardly fascist, outwardly nationalists, outwardly talking about like taking away all public, like there is no commons, everything needs to be in private hands. Like this is becoming more and more mainstream on the right. So, yep. and again, I think it goes back to her point of like the Democrats and the neoliberals are just unequipped and unprepared for that kind of onslaught. They're just not, and if they're not willing to work with us, right on the on the left, there's I I, I think I was listening to the Bitcoin room last night and they said something like, uh, Franny brought up a a study that showed that all of this outreach towards like disaffected Republicans, sort of like midway Republicans mm-hmm. that the democratic party has been doing with the Biden campaign, maybe, maybe swings 5%, which is 5% of like whatever it is, the 10% of Republicans that refuse to go along with Trump. Right. Yeah. It's a min like a minimal, but I think for the Democrats, it's a, it's a question of funding. Like those people are much more comfortable to bring over than the, you know, let's potentially 30 to 40% of people that never vote, yeah. but would come out for somebody that was a Bernie Sanders maybe. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what sucks is we'll never really know that. I mean, again, go, I think we were talking about it too is about the DSA's organizing, electoral organizing. I mean, unfortunately, once the Sanders campaign kind of, hmm, I can't think of the right, <laughs> right word for what happened to the Sanders campaign. Once it ceased to be the Sanders campaign and became the Biden campaign, yep. I think that's where now the it's hard to tell. I think we'll only know once yep. all the numbers are counted if the DSA was able to hold on to those people, the or the unorganized people that they organized over the last four years, if they were able to hold on to those people and bring them on board to stop fascism in November, you know? Yep. I think that'll be the real test. And... I think also for me, it was in talking to her, something that always stood out was their real push to organize in rural communities yep. and like the middle states, right? Not just the yeah, bastions. She, and she said that like in the southern states yeah, were southern one states. of the fastest and the Rust growing. Belt, in which the Rust I found Belt, also fascinating. Fastest growing membership was mm-hmm. in those areas, which I, yeah, I found yeah. that really fascinating because, and it kind of makes sense because there are a lot of like, um, uh, you know, people in the South who are suffering from like economic injustice and, and the Rust Belt because all of the manufacturing is gone away and the man, the Rust Belt and the South were like the hearts of manufacturing for a lot of years, 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 generations. Right. Yeah. And I, I think she, and she mentions it as well is that these are the people that are really hard hit, you know, kind of devastated communities after the recession, after like multiple rounds of, you know, the globalization shipping jobs away. Yeah, these are the people that are really desperate. They're the ones getting thrown out of their house, and now with the fucking pandemic, these you know, and no, apparently no relief for people that can't pay their mortgages anymore. I mean, it's just hard to fathom. And then you want, and then it becomes really difficult as a socialist to like listen to capitalists talking about the stock market. You know, yeah. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic where you're asking people to stay home and stay safe, and then you're going to throw families out of their house yep. because they can't pay back a bank who just got trillions of dollars in free money from the government. Yep. It's like, it's absurd. The system doesn't work for the <laughs> it's people. It's totally absurd. So how can people find out more about the DSA? 
you're going to want to go to dsausa.org is the first place to go. You have tons of information. Their calendar's coming up with all kinds of, as we're all doing now in the COVID time, they have tons of like virtual uh, town halls and meetings and educational things coming up. Um, they got one coming up for uh, to save the U.S. Postal Service. Their recruitment drive kickoff is coming up this month. Um, what else? They do a lot of great, like, going back to the educational part of it, like, teaching people about the history and the legacy of American socialism, especially. Like, yeah. how, how, like, we talk about in the film that there is a long tradition of socialism in America that gets, that we don't get taught, right? And so yeah. they do a lot of work in that. Um, but I would encourage everybody to go to DSA USA. And also there you can find um, a list of their caucuses. So if you want to join, I would also encourage everybody to go there and find out, you know, what groups are speaking to you or, or, or that you feel that you can have a voice in. And that's where you can really start then engaging and, and start making some change within the group and, and moving forward. Great. Thanks for the talk, Blake. Thank you, Randy. Great questions. So that's it for this episode of the Resistance Companion Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, got some new information. I hope you're all going to go visit the DSA website and figure out how you can get involved. Uh, if you like what we're doing with the podcast so far, if you're getting some information, please subscribe and rate us. Um, leave some comments. We always appreciate the engagement. Um, and also, please go check out the Resistance series on our Vimeo channel. Go ahead over to vimeo.com slash Media. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week. And until then, keep resisting. The Resistance Companion Podcast is a Stuis Media podcast and is recorded in Munich, Germany. This podcast is produced by myself and Randy M. Salo. Executive producer is Janine Stengel-Lewis. The music for this podcast was composed by Kai Metzner. All of the interviews featured in this podcast were recorded on location in Washington, D.C. by Dennis Provost. The Resistance Companion podcast is part of our larger multimedia project, including a web series which you can watch at vimeo.com slash Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep resisting. <laughs>